0: Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. That's where we're at in the book of Luke. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, um, it's broken into two different sections. There's the Old Testament, which is the story of the people of God before Jesus. And then there is what we call the New Testament, which is the story of Jesus and then of the people who planted churches and led the the early church and, and all the letters they wrote to one another. Um, and we are in uh, Luke, which is one of the stories of Jesus. There's four, what I like to call, documentaries of Jesus. Matthew is one, Mark, Luke, and John, and they tell the story of Jesus on earth. And Luke is one of the most detailed, so we actually don't find this story in other um, uh, of the four Gospels, but it's right here in Luke, and it's a really fascinating one. What I want to talk about tonight um, is, is a, I have a very simple aim. And here's my aim. If you're like a note taker, this is like the whole thing's gonna be about this. Here's my aim. Can a human today hear from God? Is it possible for a person alive today, not one of the apostles, not one of the people who walked with Jesus, but somebody who is just a 21st century person, can they hear from God? And what would God tell them? If God were to speak, What would he speak, and what would happen if he did speak? Let's work through the story before us in Luke chapter 2. Look down at your Bibles, Luke 2, verse 22. Jesus has just been born. Uh, Well, actually, fast forward a couple years in his life, but he's been born, and his parents bring him to the temple. Verse 22, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph, and Mary... "...took him," being Jesus, "...to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord." Verse 23, "...as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord." Verse 24, "...and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two pigeons." You're like, what is going on? We have baby dedications, there's no pigeons involved. What the heck is happening?" Well, this is a this tradition that, that uh, the Jewish people participated in was part of the tradition of generosity. What I mean is that when God provides a child to a couple, in the Jewish tradition, they are to consecrate that child to God. What does that mean? What is consecration? It's to dedicate to God whatever he's given you. All of the law. Why all those weird rules in the law? It's a way of teaching people from the outside in, now it changes in the New Testament, but The law was this, from the outside in, training people to respond correctly to God. That's what we're seeing right here in the text. So what are we learning? Well, Mary and Joseph, they're good Jews. They're following the law. Verse 25, now they're in the temple. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. I want you to pay attention to this phrase here, the consolation of Israel. What is that? What is the consolation of Israel? Well, remember, Jesus is not a random human untethered to any culture or ethnicity. He's Jewish. And the Jews for thousands of years at this point had been waiting for the promises over their nation to come true. Promises like these. We've got a few of them up here on the screen. This is one of the promises. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. In other words, all those nations we've been warring against, one day they're going to repent. Isaiah chapter 60, here's another promise. The Gentiles shall come to your light. The nations, those wayward people, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. What a promise. Or how about this one in Deuteronomy? The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. I like that one. We need to start saying that. No, no, no. We are the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. But the story of the Jewish people is one of horror and being at the bottom and heartbreak and disappointment because they have gone astray from God's law and his commands. King after king of the Jews led them astray into the worship of other false gods that the nations worshipped. And literally, nation after nation occupies Israel and then exiles them on a couple different occasions from their rightful land. And and, and even at the time of Simeon, Israel is occupied by Roman soldiers. So they're not free. They're the furthest thing from a light for the nations, or the head and not the tail. And so you have to imagine, this man Simeon is living with this great tension in his heart. While all of his Jewish friends and leaders have chalked up the promises of Israel to just wishful thinking, he's there saying, "Ah, I actually have a word how powerful is a word. I actually have a promise, and I'm waiting for the consolation of the king, the consolation of the Messiah, the one who would save Israel and thus save humanity. That's Simeon, next verse, verse 27. Moved by the Spirit. Notice how much the the Spirit is mentioned in Think about the language he's using. A light, where have we heard that, Isaiah 60, for uh, for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. I'm not sure how most parents would respond if I said that at the child dedication. <laughs> yeah, your, your child, I just see there a sign that's gonna be spoken again, so just be encouraged by that. Um. <laughs> okay, then we meet a new character. So we have Simeon, very powerful man, full of the spirit, The kind of person that just depended upon the promises of God, so much so that he became the promises of God to this family. Very powerful. Verse 36. There was also a prophet, Anna. If your name's Anna, you're a prophet. The daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, And then was a widow until she was 84. So get this. She's married for seven years. Her husband dies. From that point forward, she lives. Pay attention. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. She's the, we're all like, wow, what a great lady. No, no, she's the wacky person. She's the person that you're like, I don't know about them. Night and day, she lives in the church. Verse 38, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary, have you ever gotten a prophetic word and then you get another one that's the exact same and you're like, what is going on? This is what's happening to them. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. I want to use these two examples, the example of Simeon and the example of Anna, to talk about two principles in a life lived with trust in God. How many of you guys understand, we're not called to be Christians, we're called to be reconciled sons and daughters, We're called to have a relationship of trust where daily, monthly, yearly, our trust in God increases. Where it increases, I trust you more today than I did yesterday. I trust you more this year than I did three years ago. That's the trajectory. So what, so what these two show us is they, they show us two principles uh, that will happen in your life when you have a life of increasing trust. So Simeon, what, what's, the, what's the principle? What do we learn from him? Well, he had a promise. He had a word over his life. He will see the consolation of Israel. That's the word over his life. That's the prophetic promise over his life. And this promise actually gave him a lens of expectation for what he would see, and thus he recognized the Messiah when he saw Jesus. He had a promise. Everybody's like, (laughs) Roman occupation, head not the tail. No, 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 we're the tail, not the head. Top, not the bottom. No, no, we're the bottom, not the top. And he's like, I will see the Messiah. (laughs) do you know how difficult it is i mean we're learning this as believers in this current day how difficult it is to stand against the tide of cultural and popular opinion and have a different take and he's like yeah no i'm gonna see the messiah this is probably one of those ones he didn't tell the many people i would imagine but it so sets him up to recognize the messiah when he walks in the room So then he participates in declaring who Jesus would be prophetically, so much so that we have it written down right here. So here's the principle, here's the principle. You listen to his voice, and you will become his voice. You listen to his voice, and eventually, one day, you will become his voice prophetically over someone else who came along. Anna, what's the lesson of Anna? What's the principle of Anna, the old woman who never left the temple? The principle of faith is this, what you soak in, you see. What you spend time on, you will recognize. This is the story of Simeon and Anna, and I, and I think they both encapsulate this great privilege of our lives, because the Christian life is not so much about doing good Christian things as it is a pursuit of knowing God. It's this pursuit of, and, and all the mystery, and all of the, the difficulty in that, of but of knowing God, and and. When you hear promises, when you recognize his presence, then if you are in that pursuit of knowing him, you will end up participating. So I suppose what I want to address tonight is this common question that I get. I get this question probably once a month from somebody who is either like, like they're one of your friends who doesn't like it that you go to a charismatic church or somebody who's new to the church and they're like, what the heck is all this word stuff? Here's the question. Is this lifestyle possible? Can you be Simeon? Can you be Anna today? (laughs) Is it it even possible to be prophetic? Uh, Is God still speaking? And here's what I want to say this evening. God is still speaking. Rhema happens. Rhema happens. See, there are two words in Greek uh, for word in the Bible. Two words for the word word in the Bible. And they are logos and rhema. And Kind of simplistically, but this is pretty much how it bears out across the entire New Testament in Greek. Logos refers to the written word. This is the logos. We got the logos, the written word. And rhema refers to the spoken word. Um, There are some exceptions, but that's commonly how they are used. So for an example of logos, here we go. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young person stay on the path of purity by living according to your logos? In the Septuagint, where they translate the Hebrew into Greek, they use the word logos for this. Why is that? Because if you want to stay pure, if you want to live an abundant life, you better guard it with the logos. You better spend time in the scriptures. That's how you stay on the path of purity. I remember learning this. You know, I became a Christian at 17. And as a young man, I, I, I actually, I think I got saved because of a rhema word, <laughs> a fret, we're gonna get to it in a second, a freshly spoken word that I felt God speak to me. But then I opened up the scriptures and I found, oh, the voice that is speaking to me is in here, all over the pages. And the, and the, the truth and the words just began to jump off the page and begin to reorient my life and the way that I thought about what's true and wisdom and how to live my life and what I wanna dedicate myself to and all of that. It's so important that we stay in the scriptures. If you want to hear from God, spend time in the scriptures. You want to hear from him? Read the Bible. Um, But how many of you understand that God spoke and he's still speaking? This is rhema. Rhema is the other word for word in Greek. And and here's just the definition um, out of a Greek uh, lexicon. Rhema is a thing spoken. A word or saying of any kind as command, report, report promise a spoken word made by the living voice this is really interesting it's this living voice it's not a voice that's dead per se or a voice that's on the text it's alive commonly used in the new testament and the uh, whenever you by the way little bible thing whenever you see lxx that's a shorthand for the septuagint which is the greek translation of the hebrew uh, old testament okay so that's the translation. Whenever they, in other words, what they're saying is they used rhema multiple times in the Septuagint for this living voice. For the Lord speaking his dynamic, living word in a believer to in-birth faith. That's rhema. Remember when the angel comes to Mary to announce the coming of Jesus. In Luke chapter one, he's, the, the angel says this, for no rhema of God will ever fail. No word of God will ever fail. Now, in context, what is the rhema? Well, it's Mary receiving this prophetic word that she's going to bear the Messiah. That's the rhema, this prophetic word, this freshly spoken word from God that is going to change the course of her life in human history. And, and here's the question. Does rhema still happen? Does rhema, We know Logos happens, and we know the benefit of Logos, but does Rhema still happen? See, I believe that not only does Rhema still happen, but it is the foundation of all prophecy. See, I believe that we can live like Simeon. I believe that, we, that you can hear from God and that you can share what you sense God is speaking to you. Now, I just opened up a can of worms, and we're going to talk a little bit about it tonight from a theological perspective, I promise, in a very Logos perspective. Uh, centric perspective. See, there are some who believe that God is no longer speaking, and thus there is no prophecy. In fact, what we do here, there there are some who would believe that we are false prophets and charlatans. Um, There are some who believe that God is no longer active in the way that he was active in the biblical time. So there's no such thing as healing. It's all just, you're making it up. There's no such thing as any sort of supernatural activity. Um, and, And this kind of Theological bent is called cessationism. Anybody heard of cessationism before? Okay, a couple of you? (laughs) Okay, hopefully this doesn't bore you guys, but I think this is actually important. Here's cessationism neatly put. Here's what it is. We don't have apostles like Paul and Peter and John anymore. They gave us the authoritative teaching by which the church continues to live to this day, and that is the only teaching we will need until Jesus returns. I actually agree with this. I think this is exactly right. The apostles, what we, the apostles we read about in the text who knew Jesus, they played a unique role in the founding of the church. They founded the church. And they wrote the canon of scripture that we have before us today, but there are gifts of the spirit that are not tethered to a time frame. There's nowhere in, in the New Testament that says, and then the gifts of the spirit will end. You can't find it. And I believe there are lesser issues... Or circumstances in which the implications of the gospel remain fuzzy. In other words, there are things in our current everyday that the Logos does not specifically speak to. It speaks around it, And there are implications to it, but I believe that the Spirit of God gives us wisdom and insight in little r revelation, not capital R revelation like what's before us, for the flourishing of people and the correct choosing of his children. In other words, God speaks his rhema words around issues that we need wisdom about so that we might, you know, I think about, um, gosh, what uh, Paul says in, in Romans chapter five, so that we might reign in life. So that we might reign That word wisdom is connected to the word rule, so that we might reign in life. We actually need the voice of God in our lives to do that. Jesus said this. He said, man does not live on bread alone, but every rhema, but every rhema. Now, there's a reasonable fear behind cessationism, and it's actually a fear that I share, which is this? What happens to a society, a church, or individuals when certainty in a belief wanes and there's other voices speaking into it? What if it, it can't just be this free for all? No, no, no. We need the recorded text to be the only thing that we focus on. None of this like word stuff. What happens if we can't simply point to the Bible and say, "Look, there it is. That settles it." Or what happens when there might be some interpretation needed? This is actually a little bit more of a gray area than I thought. Does that make you uncomfortable? Or what if people's experience, I think this is a big concern of cessationism, what if people's experience takes the place of truth? I don't want to live in that world. See, I think this is legitimate, but the answer to misuse is not non-use, it's correct use. The answer, this is, we should just be thinking, this is like how to not be an extreme person on either side of any issue. The answer to misuse is not non-use, it's correct use. Jesus seemed to be aware of this potential uh, for people misusing the rhema of God or misusing the word of God when he said this about false prophets in Matthew chapter seven. He said, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening Wolves. Lots of times, I think, cessation uh, theologians, they use this passage to say, see, charlatans. But here's the thing. Why would he warn us about false prophets if there weren't real prophets? The sheer, the sheer idea that there are false prophets mean that there must be some who are real. Paul actually thinks this as well. So turning your Bibles to the right to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 to the right in your Bible, past Acts and Romans, and then eventually you'll get to 1 Corinthians, which is a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in the first century. Um, Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and I want to just look down at verse five. We're going to kind of bounce through this passage just a little bit. This is a really interesting one. Okay, so it says this. I would like Every one of you. Who's he speaking to? The church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. (laughs) We haven't given that message yet. I would like all of you to speak in tongues. How about that? Um, but, But pay attention to this. But even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues Unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, why, why would that be? The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Unless the tongues are used to edify the church. Well, because prophecy naturally edifies. How do I know? Go back to the beginning of chapter 14. He says this, Follow the way of love, verse 1, and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. <laughs> they utter mysteries by the Spirit but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Prophecy is this powerful thing. You're like, wait a second, are you telling me that prophecy is supposed to strengthen, encourage, and comfort? What about Old Testament prophets and all of the hellfire and brimstone that those guys spoke Aren't, you know, this is I get this criticism a lot. You know, you guys say that you're prophesying, but you only say good things. How can you only say good things? Oh, a lot changed at the cross. Yeah. Yes. What you're reading in the Old Testament is you are reading prophets who are confronting the severity of sin with the severity of righteousness. It's severe. What, you are, what we're talking about in the New Testament is we're talking about people with an eternal destiny, a hope, and a reconciliation to Yahweh. We talk different. God's wrath is no longer an expressive wrath like we saw in the Old Covenant. In fact, in Romans chapter one, it says that his wrath is allowing people to feel the consequences of their own choices. They're receiving within themselves their due penalty. So there still exists wrath, but what is the wrath? It's the natural consequences of living a sinful life. How does he change it? In that same chapter, Romans chapter one, he says, but it's the Lord's kindness that leads people to repentance. So our words, our prophetic words, must line up with strengthening, encouraging, and comforting because we are the people who use kindness to draw people to repentance, not hellfire brimstone like the Old Testament prophets. Jesus said this. He said, uh, or or the the Bible says this about Jesus, that uh, he fulfilled the prophets and he fulfilled the law. In other words, We don't have a law like we used to. We now have the law of the Spirit, and we don't have prophets like we used to. We now have prophets who strengthen, encourage, and comfort. It's very, very powerful stuff. And then Paul, he gives these instructions about church gatherings and prophecy, about this, what we're doing right now. You're like, is this biblical, all these words that they're giving? Well, let's find out. I think Paul might be on my side. Uh, Skip down to verse uh, 26. Verse 26. What shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, we're together. It's awesome. When you come together, each one of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three should speak, because we can only take so much tongues, one at a time, and someone must interpret If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Which I hear that around here all the time. Sometimes in the middle of worship, you'll hear somebody next to you speaking in tongues. Do you know what they're doing? They're doing something biblical. They're doing what Paul told them to do. Verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak. You should have prophets who speak. And the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can All prophesy. Everybody say that. You can all prophesy. You can all prophesy. Oh, that's good news. You can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. That sounds like a good gathering. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. In other words, you can't just be like, I have a prophecy and spout whatever you want to spout and just be like, hey, it was God, not me. No, no, no. The spirit of prophecy is under your control. You have the ability to choose and to discern. Should I say this, and should I say it this way? Verse 33, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Okay, in our gatherings, we should expect the moving of the Holy Spirit. In other words, that's what he's saying. You should expect God to move. You should expect your gatherings to be a little wacky and need an explanation, like what the heck was going on there? And what was that person talking about there? And that was really weird. I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody come up to me and say, "I invited my family. You guys did prophecy, and they don't know if I'm a Christian anymore. <laughs> You're like, or they think it's a cult. So I, I don't know. I'm sorry. Um, no, 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 there should be an explanation because we're people with a solution that nobody else has. There will be people who prophesy, and that that prophecy will be weighed and tested. There will be tongues and interpretation. So so let me ask you this. If God was going to stop speaking to people, he was going to stop doing rhema, why didn't he say so? And why didn't Paul say, hey, you're going to do this for a little while, but there's an expiration date on it? Why? One of my favorite passages of all time is uh, Psalm 25, verse 14. Here's what what the psalmist says. Um, The Lord, or Yahweh, confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. What does it mean to confide in somebody? It's, it's to tell them uh, things, but not just anything. It's to tell somebody things that are close to your heart or deep on your mind, that you wouldn't post, you wouldn't print these things. These are things that are intimate. I may even go as far as to say this. God shares his secrets with those who fear him. He conf- what else could it mean? He confides in those who fear him. Paul describes this process in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Here's what he says. He says, For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In other words, I don't know what you're thinking. Only you know what you're really thinking. I don't know what your motives are. Only you know what your motives really are. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Haven't you read the passage, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You don't know them. But do you? What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. If you've never considered this passage, you should really consider it. What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? Here's my take I think it means that God mingles his thoughts with our thoughts. We have them. We have his thoughts. So we get to check the thoughts that one of us may be believing is Rama. I think this might be from God. We get to check it with the collective mind of Christ. That we is not a singular we, it's a plural we. We have the mind of Christ. If you've never been to pre-gathering prayer, this is what we practice. At pre-gathering prayer, we practice listening, asking God what he might be saying, and discerning together. There'll be oftentimes somebody will, think, will say, I don't know, this could be me, it seems kind of weird, but I just got this this strange impression, and somebody else will say, I actually think I might know what that means. I think it means this. Whoa. There's something going on in the spirit. We want to be open to that. If God isn't still doing a rhema, then you have a relationship with God like someone has a a relationship with a relative who has passed away but left them letters. What I'm saying is that rhema still happens because God isn't dead, he's alive. There's a living word. And the life of Anna and Simeon is possible. But perhaps for some of you right now, I've made you very uncomfortable, and there's biblical authority warning lights flashing in your mind right now. You're like, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Because if someone can hear God's voice, what if it contradicts the Bible? Or what if they claim that they found a new revelation that changes everything? Well, the scriptures actually speak to this quite harshly in Revelation I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll, which they're not pleasant. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. We do not add to the text. We do not take away from the text. Anything that we sense, the scriptures say we see in part. And so we say, humbly, it could be, it maybe isn't. There are really two common approaches to biblical authority. And I want us as a family, I want you to know how we approach biblical authority. The two um, types of biblical authority are the objectivist or the subjectivist approach to biblical authority. Like I said, this is a teaching. You're like, he's using objectivists and subjectivists and what? Uh, Okay, so the objectivist view of the authority of the scriptures is this. God uses human language, this is in our language, human language, to tell us definitively about his, I didn't write this, I copied and pasted this, so that A, that's not my fault. About his ways, works, will, and worship. The scriptural past is wiser than the community's present. Think about that. The scriptural past is wiser in leading us to truth than our present ability to just come up with stuff, basically. That's one approach. The other approach is this, the subjectivist approach. God uses the church's communal experience to tell us about his ways, workings, will, and worship while scripture witnesses definitively to the unique work of Jesus, it also reflects a culturally and scientifically limited worldview that we must transcend. The community's present is wiser than the scriptural past. And if you are astute, you have now learned why there is a division between churches and Newburgh. These are the two different takes. Is the community's present the lens through which we use to understand what truth is, or is the scripture the lens through which we view everything else that happens around us? How do you find truth? Is it in the plain reading of Paul in the New Testament? Or is the experience of the community and the individuals in that community in any given era more authoritative lens through which to view this ancient and sometimes embarrassingly out-of-date text? Here's where I think we land as a church. Here's where I think we land as a church. God uses human language and contextual knowledge to explain who he is and what his purposes are. The scripture is wiser and more authoritative than present day experience and all experience is judged by the scriptures. And all the words of the Bible are the word of God, but not all the words of God are in the Bible. You're like, Read it again. (laughs) This is a tightrope, but I think it is possible for us as a a community of believers to be settled on some untouchable or uninfluencible readings of the text, such as the resurrection. We're not debating the resurrection. Such as the sexual ethic of Jesus and the New Testament authors. Such as the desire of God for the world on earth as it is in heaven. Such as the idea that God communicates with people and wants relationships. It is possible to be very, very firmly rooted on some of those core, core things to us, but to be flexible and open to God's current day guiding on how those things practically work themselves out in our lives, how we communicate them, and what we emphasize in a given season based upon the leading of his Holy Spirit, his rhema word in our lives. Let me give you one example. Uh, Two years ago, two years ago, Andoni. this was two years ago. Two years ago, I wanted to do a relationships and sexuality series. I was very excited about it. There were a lot of people in the church that were like, what do you guys think about you know, sexuality, homosexuality, the transgender thing? What, what are your thoughts? What is it, what do you, how do you read the text in light of all of that? And I was like, oh man, you, know, you plant a church and you try to like, get the main thing the main thing. And, but we really do need to address these things. And so I felt this great burden that I needed to talk about them. And so I wrote a whole series. I have a whole series that I wrote just specifically on human sexuality from a theological perspective and on what God defines as flourishing. And about a week before we were supposed to start the series, so this is like February or March 2020, a week before we start the series, and comes to me and he, he sits me down. This is the only time he's ever done this, but he sits me down and he says, I had a dream and I don't think that we're supposed to do this series. And I'm like, okay, what was the dream? And he said, in the dream... Um, you were standing, me, I was standing in front of a group of people, and I said, Hey, we're going to talk about sexuality. And everybody had a spear, and they lowered their spear at me. And he said, I do not think that this is the right time to talk about sexuality in the life of our church. We're not there yet. I said, Oh, but I wrote a whole thing, man. <laughs> I like, you know, I'm like, Hey, listen, I put a lot of work into this. And, you know, to be honest, like the coward in me is like, I don't want to talk about it. So it's pretty easy to not talk about it. So maybe, you know, I'm I'm trying to discern, like, is this from the Lord? Is this just me? You know, all of that. And he said, but I I saw in the dream that we waited for another opportune moment and you spoke about it and everybody raised their sword up and you walked on top of the spears. Let me ask you this. Two years ago, did we believe that God was changing his theology about sexuality? No, absolutely not. This is the balance if we're gonna be biblical and believe in both Logos and Rhema. It's this. It's, okay, there's some set things and we need to address those, those set things, but we are also open to the voice of God that would maybe give us wisdom in a moment to know this is the time to do this. This is not the time to do this. That doesn't change the truth. It just is there's certain things that he has grace for and if you don't have Rhema, you don't know what those things are in a given season. I want us to have a, a paradigm for guarding against abuses when it comes to uh, prophecy and it comes to the word of God, or, or this is a word from God, or any of that. I think that many are afraid of abuses of somebody's, uh, of abuses like this. Somebody saying, "Thus saith the Lord," or "This is what God says about this particular issue," um, or "I heard this from God," and that's just you know that settles it, uh, because that is a there is a seriousness that comes with uh, including God in anything. God told me this. I have, you know, any of it comes with a level of authority. Whenever God speaks, is what Gary Brashear says, one of our professors. Whenever God speaks, it's authoritative, no matter what. And so I think there's some people that are like, "Whoa, I don't even know that we should do any of that because that could be abused or misused." But let me ask you this: Hasn't the logos been abused and misused as well? Haven't you been in in environments where people have used the text to say things that it's not saying and they've used it to control people? See, both the Logos and Rhema are abused and misused by people yet we don't stop using and pursuing the Bible. So we have to balance two theological realities and here's, here's the balance of our church. We should be aware of new ideas that contradict the text. False teachings that may sound biblical but are nothing of the sort. We should really be aware of that. And we should, you know, There's lots of prophetic people here, and I think most of them are very, very humble. In fact, all of the ones that I know are very, very humble people. Hey, this could be from God, maybe it's not. Listen, we should be very careful and very knowledgeable about the text to be able to check what they're saying. But we should also be ready to hear from God. <laughs> we should be expectant that he is going to speak. So... Um, what I I am after is I am after the strengthening and encouraging and comforting of people in this church. And so you will never hear us say, this is what God is saying, period. You will hear a lot of this could be from God or I get the sense. Now, to end, why even risk it? Because this is a risk, right? Talking about this as a risk, even encouraging this, this is a risk. And I wanna say this, I'm willing to take the risk because of the glory of Simeon and Anna. You could partake, you could participate in that glory. You could participate in being the person that God uses to speak a Rhema word into somebody's life. See, like, what if what you hear is from God? What then? What if what you hear is actually prophetic? I think it's worth the risk. I think it's worth the risk. We just heard a testimony, I forgot that we were even, I hadn't, when I was writing this, I forgot that we were gonna have such a great example of this. We just heard a testimony of somebody who through a prophetic word, the general word of God became specific and and she said, you know, this is what she's saying in, in so many words, God saw me. God saw me. If it is from God, you just participated in heaven coming. What glory, what purpose? Um, I recently feel like God's been asking me, um, what do you want Saints Hill to look like in 10 years? Not that I get to decide, I, I don't get to decide, but I just think he's wanting to know, like, what's on your heart? Like, what do you want Saints Hill to look like in 10 years? And I'm not much of a visionary, I'm really not. Like, I'm not the kind of person that's like, and then we're gonna conquer this industry, and then we're gonna raise people up to do this thing, and then we're gonna have this program. I got none of that. I really don't. All, all I had come to my mind was just this sense that Saints Hill is designed to be a worship center. Not like a worship center, like a building. It's designed to be a center of worship, a place where worship takes place, a, a, a temple, if you will. And, and as I was thinking about this, you know, I started reading through some of the words that you guys sent in for the new year from uh, December 26th. And, and one of you had this word about Saints Hill being a pasture land, that it's a place where God is gonna bring people and say, you need to lay down in this pasture. And you need to rest. You don't need to do anything. You just need to be in my presence. And so to end, I just want to share a story from a family who I was recently talking to. And um, they're a family who's been here for almost since the very beginning. And they're moving on. They're moving to another place. And I just got to spend some time with them today. And they said this. They said, you know, three years ago, uh, we were hurting We had been, you know, quickly and and unexpectedly moved off of the mission field. They were missionaries. They were doing rough financially, and they were discouraged when they first came to Saints Hill. And they told me that they have, since coming to Saints Hill, they have been rested. They've been healed up. They've been spoken into. They've been given family. They've been inspired for new dreams. Those backburner dreams got moved to the forefront, and each place of pain has become a place of thriving all from the presence of God. And I was just in awe as I was listening to them this morn or this afternoon Because Anna and Simeon were people who represented God in the temple. They were the encounter that people got to have with God. They were the kind of people that we all get to be should we choose to host him here. Should we choose this family like named, and then this person gave us this word, and then this person gave us this word, and then we learned this from this person. And so much of it was about prophecy. So much of it was about the people hosting God's presence. So much of it was about you guys being Anna and Simeon to them. So so here's really the reason for Saints Hill. The reason for Saints Hill is that we would be a place where people come from all over the place. Maybe you're here for just a year at George Fox. Maybe you're here just passing through for a couple of years. But that you would come into this environment with Anna and Simeon's and you would leave with a prophecy over your life, a promise over your life. You would leave with the sense of God's presence with you and through you. That's why Saints Hill, because... All revival begins with personal revival. That's the lesson. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you or if you wanna stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store or visit our website.